one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey everyone, welcome to the 293rd episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by our MVP patron, Christopher Weil. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we have Christine Weatherup and Beatrice Chaheen on the show to talk about their new film, See You Next Christmas. They're two of my very best pals, which we sometimes say on the show, but uh, in this case, it's literally actually true because I am married to Christine and co-produced the film with uh, with B. So uh, it's a real treat. This is a movie uh, for regular listeners. You'll recognize the film. This is the one that I... Uh, shot way back at the beginning, right before the pandemic, uh, and have been in post and delivery on a lot of the anecdotes over the last year uh, have been uh, direct references to producing this film. So it's a really uh, fun opportunity for us to kind of dig in and talk about the film um, specifically. So uh, it's exciting. Yeah, I'm kind of like half hosting and half guesting on this episode, along with uh, Chrissy, who or Christine uh, professionally, but Chrissy, my wife, who, who uh, wrote, directed, and stars in the film, and B, who is a longtime producing partner. You know, I think we dig in on a lot of the things that I have dabbled with talking about on the show. We get the chance to really kind of dig in on more. Like, I think your main question really is like, well, well not just why direct, but why make an indie movie? Yeah. Like knowing that there is... That it's hard... And that you've you've already bit off a lot of different challenging tasks, and that yeah, and that there's an odd ceiling for indie films. Like to me, the main reason you there are two reasons you would make an indie film, right? And I think we talked about this in the interview. Either to make money in some weird way, like we'll make it for X amount of money and we'll try to sell it for two times X amount of money, or to really introduce yourself as a filmmaker to the people that watch indie films, which is a small subset of people that watch, you know, movies in general. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear that. And I think Chrissy does a very good job of being like, well, why can't it be both? And I think that's what she, her aim was. And I think to a certain extent has achieved that. But I think also if you look at literally all of your favorite filmmakers, they all started doing it this way. Do you know what I mean? Like literally Eternals opened this weekend and like Chloe Zhao obviously was doing indies for a long time before she did her Marvel movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like no one lets you make a studio feature until you've made a movie. Like no one thinks you can make a movie until you've made a movie. Full stop. You know? Right. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's, it's interesting. 
it's just interesting to see, especially in today's climate where there's just like like the peak TV world, you know. And it, mm-hmm. if these again, films. I mean, I think you look at all like show me a filmmaker who didn't get started in indie film. Um, your friend Brenna. I don't know. Like, um, I, I think. <laughs> Sorry. So you can either win a uh, a student academy award, or 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 win. A, but that that's actually the other. That's the real answer. Is like you have to break out somehow, and so some people break out really young in film school. John Chu is another example, right? Or you have to break out if you don't break out at eighteen, nineteen, or twenty two. Pardon me. If you don't break out at twenty two. Then the other option is make something, just shoot it until people recognize it. Sometimes it's a feature, sometimes that's a a great commercial. But for the most part, I think like like I said, you don't get to make more features or prove yourself doing narrative until you have done some meaningful narrative, basically. Yeah. No, I mean the thing is, I know it's the thing to do. It's the right move. I I guess I'm just. It's like when you have someone that's like pretty successful at what they're doing already. And then they, they open up a can of, mm-hmm. of existential worms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's fun. it's interesting. And so we talk about that for about ten seconds in the. <laughs> I think we talk about it for a little bit more than that. But we talk about all the other fun things. And yeah, I mean, I guess my last question. I know we were going to do a super short intro on this one. Is I feel like you kind of don't don't take advantage of the podcast to promote your stuff as much as as you could. Is that well, you, I was about to do it. I was about to go for it. Just, oh, you're getting about to tell people how to watch See You Next Christmas? Yeah, See You Next Christmas. It is a See You Next uh, Christmas movie.com. So it is available to watch on iTunes, Amazon, all the places that you watch movies, Voodoo, and is a very charming, very, I think it's a great movie. And I, having watched it with a lot of audiences, a lot of people are really connecting with it in a way that's gratifying and fun and rewarding and uh and a relief do you know what i mean like you can watch a movie and think like oh i really like this and i i love what we were aiming for and think that we hit that mark but um but you never know until you watch it with people and then to see people and for to watch the film win awards and connect with people and for them to rally behind it is is special and, and cool so uh but i do want to tell people what the movie is about also because i don't think that we really dig in on that so it uh see you next christmas is the story of it's a rom- romantic comedy set in kind of like an indie world that takes place over the course of six christmas parties so you only the story only takes place during that actual party and so we drop in on characters once a year who are growing and interacting with each other and there's a main couple that sort of meets at the first party and it's a will they won't they sort of question as people grow and with the ensemble kind of shifts and changes and it's got all of the the questions about like what your chosen family is and you know what it is to be a young person and celebrating the holidays and growing and aging and kind of a lot of like pretty resonant themes to us that we realized have like clicked with audiences over the years. And it's about being young. It's about aging. It's about being a little older. What do we want out of life? All the existential crises that we talk about on the show, including Oren's. And so, uh, so yeah, it's a really charming, really funny, fun, unconventional Christmas rom-com. It, it, it tickles all of the, things that you want out of a rom-com uh, and also I think delivers the character-based comedy and fun and rough around the edginess of uh, of an indie comedy as well. Yeah, and my pitch for it is 
especially to this insanely niche audience that happens to listen to your podcast, is that it's based on Matt and Chrissy's real life. They really do have this annual Christmas party. And there is a character in the movie based on Matt, regardless of Matt denying it. So if you hate romantic comedies, but you like this podcast, you should still watch the movie because there's Matt. There's a character based on Matt in the movie. And uh, he's almost more likable than the real Matt. Yeah, certainly more likable than the real Matt. Um, also, I think it's worth it to point out uh, as a little lesson, as something that's obvious to people who they thought about it for a second, but probably haven't. So the way that pre-orders work for iTunes in particular is every single pre-order of a movie counts towards the day one numbers on iTunes. And so you're like, well, who the who, who the heck pre-orders a movie? The answer is not that many people, right? And so it is the most significant way. When your friends are on Facebook or on Instagram and they're like, pre-order the movie, please. It is a, an, an incredibly effective way to show your support of the film because basically that means that your movie, your your purchase counts towards the day one ticket sales, which is about spiking the algorithm, Right. So if you're going to rent the movie or buy the movie at any point, doing it in advance inadvertently gives them the chance to climb the ladder, especially quickly. And so specifically doing it on I pre, uh, pre-ordering on Amazon and stuff, I, I don't think is really an option. So like we were really all about that iTunes pre-order. And what's impressive is that like because no one pre-orders a movie a relatively small number, we're talking 50, 100, 200, makes a really dramatic difference that first day in terms of spiking it. So if you're not part of our Patreon and feel guilty about it, in the same way that I feel about the NPR drives that they do, um, then go pre-order the movie. And we'll Did you? Have I ever told you that we donated you. our car to NPR? I think you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when you hear that, they're like, hey, a good way to support NPR is to donate your car to us. And you're like, who the heck would do that? Oh, no, I've I've looked into it. My stepdad is like, it's actually cheaper for me to donate the car and use it as a write off than right. to sell it. Or, or even like if it's a junker and it doesn't mm-hmm. run, then they'll to tow it. it. Yeah, yeah, they'll pick it up. So like if you don't want to spend uh, money on a tow truck, I mean, that's the rationale. Anyway. Rather than donating your car, do me a favor, take a, uh, uh, or, you know, rate it on iTunes, uh, rate it on Letterboxd, uh, all of that stuff is a pretty significant way. So if you've learned something from this movie over the past year, uh, and I suspect if you've listened regularly, you probably did, and you want to watch a good movie, see you next Christmas. Yes. Check it out. You can watch it with your, uh, with your family. And I think it actually is pretty good for everybody. You know, maybe if you have young kids around, there's some like aggressive making out early on, but otherwise, you know, it's pretty family friendly. Wait, am I still in a few frames of the movie? You are. You are. Okay. If you guys tell us uh, the approximate minute mark of where Mm -hmm. you see me, you need eagle eyes though. Yeah. Um, It'd be pretty uh, hard. Email us, justshootapod at gmail.com and uh, we'll, we'll mention your name, even promote your website if you want us to. Awesome. Well, without any further jibber-jabber, let's talk to Christine Weatherup, Beatrice Shaheen, and me. And Matthew. Matt and Lowe, right after some messages. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So my first question is to Chrissy. You made this movie. See you next Christmas. Correct. Why, why did you make it? Do you mean what was the inspiration for the script or why did I? I mean, I wanted to make a feature. We had another feature we were moving toward making. That was expensive. And so, you know, after waiting a while to get the money for that feature, you know, you wait long enough. And I had heard this podcast, Just Shoot It. And it just reminded me I should just go (laughs) shoot a movie. But genuinely, I was waiting for a long time. And this was a more producible script. And so, you know, I had the idea because I myself throw an annual holiday party and I wrote this script sort of not as an homage, but I think that was sort of the kernel for it. And uh, we had access to a location, our own apartment, where we threw the party. And uh, that just got everything going, the momentum. It does make me think of, there was a moment a few years back where we had Sarah Adina Smith on the show. And she told a story about how she had the money for a feature and then it fell apart. And so she only had $50,000 or whatever. You know, we went back and forth. And at a certain point, she was like, what are you waiting for? No one's going to give you a million dollars to make your movie. It's yeah. not going to happen. Especially your first movie. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I'm asking even in a more at a more primal in a more primal way, like why? Why do you Chrissy? Why did you want to make a feature film? I'm guessing you're getting at it because my background is as an actor. <laughs> yeah, I, that, so, yeah. I, so I think that's like interesting about it, but also. It's something that actually ever since the beginning of this podcast, we haven't, we don't really bug people about this a lot because we, we don't know them as well as we know you. But 
there has been this question of like, why even make like a low budget feature? You know, like what's the point? Well, I'll take the question out of the low budget for a second. I mean, I think I always knew I wanted to work on both sides of the camera. I think, you know, sort of to connect it as an actor, I think as an actor, the joy of acting is you go into somebody else's project and you enter their world and it's, you know, exciting to be just brought into somebody else's playground. But it's different when you make something yourself, when you're the the driving force. And I think when we, the three of us made the short Killed in Action, and I remember distinctly after we shot it that day, I was like, for the first time, I felt like I had a voice. And I didn't ever feel like as an actor, I was missing a voice. But I think there was something about, you know, this was my vision in a way that I had never felt before. And there was something really exciting about that. Yeah. And I would say time and again, we talk to filmmakers on the show, sometimes even off mic, know that their lives changed because of that first feature, even if it was a small one. Like their careers, you mean, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so B, is that why were you interested in making kind of this small feature? Well, you know, primarily I work in TV space. So for me, and, you know, under the big studio system. So for me, doing an indie film with good friends is something that was really appealing to me, you know, having done KIA and then having done Swearsville. I mean, that's how I met Chrissy and Matt. And so we've been friends at this point for 11 years, which is wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, that's something different and and exciting. I mean, it is fun to do, you know, big shows, but it's also fun to have a part in a project that is so it's so personal where, you know, you're kind of we're all doing everything as opposed to having a bunch of different people sort of chime in from different aspects, which I mean, it's it's good because that my experience in TV does influence and did influence a lot of the way that I produced See you next Christmas, but it's something different and and exciting. And I love rom coms, so a lot of it was there were so many things that drew me to it. I think low budget also can have a bad connotation, but I, I find the stories that I like often work really well in a low budget space. So low budget to me isn't necessarily. I mean, I've, of course, we would love to have a bigger budget to play with, but I think you know there are stories that can be told in low budget films that are exciting and interesting and character driven and all the things that appeal to me as a filmmaker and a, and a moviegoer. Yeah, no. And for sure. And I, sorry, I, I hope I didn't come no, off I'm not like negative about, about <laughs> the low budget thing. I, I guess I think to me, there is like, if you're making a movie on a smaller budget, like under a million dollars movie, you're either doing it to like make money, right? You're making like some horror film and you're hoping it turns into paranormal activity or you are doing it as, you know, a way to kind of show off your talents, like a Greta Gerwig type of film, you know, and like launch your career as like a writer, actor, creator, filmmaker. Well, in a sense, I think that, I mean, hopefully this movie could do both in that while it's not horror, I think the holiday Christmas genre can act in as it, it works in a certain way. You don't need big stars and big budgets the same way you might in a romantic comedy, but setting it at Christmas suddenly you have an audience who's just hungry for Christmas content. So maybe I could check off both boxes and do the (laughs) horror genre and Greta Gerwig move. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a good point. I think just something like super specific to your movie that I think is interesting and it's 
I'm assuming like part of the reason like I was excited about the movie and that B was excited about the movie is because, you know, to the listeners that don't quite know what the movie is about, it's, it, it is about this annual Christmas party and it's told over four chapters. Six four, chapters. Sorry, six different years <laughs> of this holiday party and about a relationship that is born out of two people meeting at this holiday party and how their relationship evolves over these six years. And I think something that's probably fun for like, B and me is we were at your parties, you know? Um, and so like, it just kind of occurred to me right now that like, if you make a movie based on something from your life that other people experience with you, it's probably, they have some vested interest in like working on the movie too. It's kind of, kind of like an interesting thing to keep in mind when you're trying to figure out what the movie to make is. So you made it about this party that you host. So you obviously know the ins and outs of the party. You know the ins and outs of the characters that come to your party. And you literally like own the location where it takes place. And so just kind of putting like overlaying a plot onto that, which is I think is it's really hard to do a story that takes place over six years, you know, but you already kind of had all the building blocks for it to make it work. It's kind of a, a really cool idea. I think like something that listeners that are trying to figure out what their movie is, you know, could could kind of take that as an interesting yeah. entry. I mean, I think that there's the mentality of like, oh, well, we've got some food coloring and caro syrup and the cabin in the woods or a convenience store in New Jersey or whatever, you know, indie trope you want to lean into. We had a closet full of Christmas decorations <laughs> and a great eggnog recipe. Yeah, no, it's really good. We should make a movie about, uh, I'm making a movie about podcasts. And uh, <laughs> if you've ever been on this podcast, um, you should help us make the movie. You should be a PA on this movie. Um, <laughs> well, so I guess my last question kind of on that same line of questioning Chrissy is like, you think of like a Greta Gerwig or Zach Braff or, you know, we've had people on the podcast too that are kind of working pretty su to us successful working actors that were like, I just wasn't getting the parts I want. I mean, you even hear like Mark Wahlberg and stuff say, I just kept getting the like dumb beefcake part and I wanted good parts. So I had to make my own movies. I guess, was there a reason that you didn't make yourself the lead of the movie? You know, when I was first writing the screenplay, I think there was a moment where I thought I would be the romantic lead, Natalie. But then as I wrote it, I've, I've never, and some actors I think are really good at this, but when I think of writing something for myself, I think that gives just too much pressure. There's just a block of you know, wanting to give yourself the juiciest role or then not wanting to be so selfish. And so then you don't give yourself anything. And so I think sort of stepping away and not attaching myself to any role helped me finish the, the first draft. And then by the end of the first draft, I kind of just gravitated to the role of Annie, who's sort of, you know, there are two couples you really follow, the couple who throws the party and then these two people who meet at the party and fall in love over the course of the movie. And, you know, in a funny way, I think, because Annie is such the uh, the organizer of the party, there was a synchronicity between the director role and that role that actually made acting and directing at the same time really fluid. <laughs> That's the sound of Matt taking a picture of me talking. <laughs> At see you next Christmas movie across all social media, but mostly Instagram. Anyway, sorry, you were saying something important. I don't know. I, I don't know. No, no, no. I guess, I mean, I guess that is the thing. It's like you you hear a lot of people that are actors and directors in the same film, like maybe. I think there is a strategy around it. And I just don't know that I'm, 
I wish I were better at strategizing of this is the kind of role I've never played and this is what I want to play. But I think I was more drawn to this is the story I want to tell. And therefore, then where I fit in, I kind of, I gravitated to a spot, but it was less about here's my chance to show off my acting chops and more about I want to make a film and more interested in directing and finding performances and less about showing myself off as an actor, which may be as unwise as an actor, but I think... I mean, there's a logistics to it, a logistical challenge to it too, right? Like, you know, B and I can attest, it's it's hard to have your director in front of the camera, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it was really nice that you had a really meaningful amount of screen time, but, you know, the days where you weren't in front of the camera... There was only one day I was not in front of the camera. The, the day. <laughs> but, you know, you would you would literally, you'd transform. You'd put on your fanny pack and, and you know, not have to, uh, or, or we would have shot you out already or whatever. Like, there is a distinct shift between just literally wearing one fewer hat, basically. Yeah. You know, um, the video tap, the, the device that they use on film cameras so you can see video of of what you're recording you, you know who invented that uh jerry lewis yeah do you know and you know why obviously because he wanted to see his takes he needed video playback yeah he was like directing and acting so it's yeah it's interesting that like as a actor director you, you have to have these other people probably like matt and b that you trust to be like yeah you you did it. You were in the frame. Yeah, the you workflow is interesting. And I feel like in Killed in Action, we had a little bit of that discovery. But also on a feature, it's different and there's more days. And, you know, oftentimes it would be taping the rehearsal, watching it. But then also when you're shooting, there you just don't have the time to watch every take. So it would only be if I had a really big question about that take that I would rewatch it. But that requires a certain level of trust of your entire team you know, to move forward, especially, you know, on an indie schedule where you might not get many takes per setup, mm -hmm. you know. Did, did you have any, um, I feel like you, there were a few strategies that you had, a few like mantras, because we, I think we had Josh Rubin on right before we started rolling and I asked him about it because he had just done Scare Me, which he stars in and directs. And I feel like he had a few pointers. What were some of the kind of like, uh, rules that you gave yourself or what, what did you focus on when you were trying to prep and what changed over the course of production? Because there, it was a 16 day shoot, but we should say that like the first three parties were each basically long weekends. So we had time to recalibrate in between. I would say preparation is the biggest thing. So I feel like I prepped harder as both a director and actor as maybe I would have. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd like to say I'd prep really hard no matter what, but I think making sure that all those choices were made beforehand so that on the day I knew exactly what I wanted. And and I created, and I, I feel like it might've been a guest on the podcast who had suggested like this, creating a, um, I'm blanking on what we called it, like a production Bible where I went through every single scene and I, I wrote down what the scene was about, what needed, you know, if there were any special department needs, but sort of what the why that scene was in the screenplay, why it was essential. So that going into every scene, I knew, okay, this is, you know, this scene is all about tension, you know, with this long married couple and we have to paint this picture. And so just knowing kind of what the goal of the scene was and having a North star 
then when we had to recalibrate because something, you know, we didn't have enough time or something had to shift, I knew what was important. But, you know, in prepping for Killed in Action, I sought out a lot of actor-director interviews. And one of the things that really stuck out, Jodie Foster, who, like, as a child was my idol and who I wanted to be, she talked about, you know, the one sort of drawback of being an actor-director is that you'll never surprise yourself with your performance because it's always going to be what you could imagine. You know, you can plan and plan and you'll, you might get it. Hopefully you'll get it, but there will never be the surprises you get with an actor who's not you. And I think that is a little bit, you know, if there is a drawback, I mean, you can plan and plan and that's wonderful and you have control, but you don't have that surprise element you get with every other actor on set. Yeah. But I, I guess there's pluses and minuses. Like we had Zoe Lister-Jones on the podcast and she's, you know, she was telling us that from within the scene, she's directing because she's setting a pace, she's setting a tone and she's kind of infectious in like. You can nudge, you want a performance to go a certain way, you can kind of push them that way with what you're giving them. Yeah. sort of fun. And I imagine <laughs> if an actor gives you something unexpected, someone you're acting with, you would maybe react to that in a way That's that true. you didn't expect. Yeah, I think you might be underplaying. It's not like you, it's not a song that you're singing. Do you know what I mean? I think like you're the challenge maybe is just being in the moment, right? But like I think when you were acting, you were acting. And well, that's true, but there's nobody giving you direction that couldn't come that wouldn't occur to you. You know, there's no surprises, which in a way is nice <laughs> not to have surprises. But I'm just saying you don't approach it. But but you don't know how the other person is going to That's do. true. I'm not saying it's like you're you're, you know, a robot showing up. But I think you have the direction you want and that is what you're chasing. And there's no surprise of like, oh, I never thought of the scene that way, other than reacting off of what's happening. But were you a robot in Westworld? <laughs> no, not in Westworld. But I was surrounded by robots. Oh, okay. Seduced by a robot. You know, you know, it's funny. It makes me think putting on both host and producer hat. I think it, it sort of reminded me, B, I'd love your thoughts on this. There were moments where, because the production team is small. It's, it's me and B and a handful of really wonderful, supportive, talented people. But like, you know, it's, it's like Enrique. There's a handful of people, right? And because Chrissy is in front of the camera sometimes, B and I tried our hardest to at least have one of us on monitor for any of them, those moments. But if there was something hard about the shoot, besides all the regular indie movie hardships of like money and time and sleep deprivation and stuff, I think that was the thing that I think surprised me, I would say. What do you do? You, have you mean ha having us on like in terms of us just kind of having different hats and and being in different places at the same time or not being able to be in the same place? I think at the same time? not being able to be in the same place at the same time. Yeah, we, ha yeah. we had to delegate always. Yeah. Yeah, I would know for sure. I, I would agree. I mean, you know, I think that's but that's the nature of indie filmmaking, right? It's like you're you're a producer and you're a PA. <laughs> In the way that you all were putting duvetine up in the morning and, you know, I was running to get breakfast on my way in to, for the entire cast and crew. And I do feel like sometimes I was like, I'm going to take Firewatch. I need to look at my phone for a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you'd show up to set B and Matt would be like, did you bring breakfast for the rest of us? And you're like, <laughs> oh. Exactly. 
Is uh, did you guys have a first AD? We did. Although our first day of shooting, I'm sure we all remember this, even though maybe we could have blocked it out. We had two uh, crew members, important AD and script supervisor, who were sick, and so the very first day, which is chaotic, Mm, just because it's the first day. And (laughs) and then we didn't have our AD. Well, and I think that was one of the days that was the most challenging with Mad B. You know having to cover other things and not having the privilege of being able to be on set the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just getting everything up and running too, right. It's the first day. I mean, of course you have your challenges, but and not everyone has met yet. So there's not that the unspoken language and the gelling that sort of happens naturally when you're a few days and, you know, weeks into shooting. So yeah, we didn't have a second AD. And I think that that made things, extra challenging because the cast is so large that and like and we had you know a lean hair and makeup team and and wardrobe team and so it's just a lot of people to get through the works and so kind of our poor ad i feel like was constantly like bouncing back and forth between base camp and set just trying to get things in order basically yeah 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 Yeah, and then production was sort of doubling as the second ad too right (laughs) (laughs) i'm curious b so you know, obviously kind of your main day job is, um, you know, you, you work in production and television, uh, episodic television. You were, how long were you on Brooklyn Nine-Nine for? Uh, since the beginning. So I all did. All 99 seasons. I did all 99 <laughs> seasons. I did 152 of 153 episodes. So I did everything except mm. for the pilot. That's like this guy at my high school that had perfect attendance from K through 12. And then he was sick, like <laughs> couldn't come to school, like one day of like the last week of school. Um, well, so I'm, ass- I'm assuming, and I could be totally wrong because I don't know exactly like what you did on Brooklyn. I but I'm assuming you had a more creative hand on See You Next Christmas than you did on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I guess, can you talk a little bit about like as a producer, like, when you you are making creative choices versus when you are trying to like have other people make those creative choices yeah i think well sometimes i feel like on on set i tend to default to that because that's where my strengths lie are the like the more managerial like organizational aspects of it like i feel like when sometimes i'd go down to set and everyone's like oh god b's here that means she's she, that means we're running behind on sketch not true <laughs> like, she's here being like speed up or you know here's where we're at on time um yeah it's it's a fun exercise for me to sort of go into the more creative space because my mind i think just tends to default to like i said the organizational logistics um, aspect of it. So I try to really lean into that, you know, and my projects outside of, um, you know, episodic television, because I have that, that luxury. And it's, I think when you're dealing with something on a bit of a smaller scale, you also have, there's more of a creative say in that way versus a giant television show that has 150 plus people on it. So are you the production manager? Is that your role? Well, I'm, I ended Brooklyn as production supervisor. Okay, production supervisor. I was going to say it's a little bit easier, I think, for both of us uh, when we're not in production to be more creatively oriented. Like you in casting, you were like super, super engaged. It's like, I, I think, and I think this is probably true for most people, you kind of default to the thing you are the best at when you're in the fire. When you're in crisis mode, it's like, okay, I, I will take care of this really challenging thing 
because it is exactly in my wheelhouse. And so I feel like I was like working on camera stuff while you were working on production stuff pretty free- frequently, you know? Yeah. yeah but, but when the fire is, when the burner isn't quite so high, I think you get a chance to kind of, you know, take a step back and, and do a little bit more of the creative stuff. We, we, I feel like we really actively, especially the further in worked harder at carving out and communicating about creative opportunities for each other, you know? Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And I think it was a, a, a lesson. It was, there was an arc to it. Certainly. Like we, you had to be conscious about it, you know. I was curious if you guys had like a meeting before you started shooting where it was Chrissy was like, look, this is the type of feedback I'm open to. And this is the type of feedback I like. Don't tell me you don't like my shot selection, you know, but do tell me if you see something better about art direction or something. And like, like, I'm assuming that B probably it was like, hey, we want to hear what you think about this location or what you think about this camera package or this DP or this you know, angle yeah. or art direction more than maybe people usually. And I'm sure with Matt, it's kind of like the opposite. Like, Hey, we, we want you to help us figure out more like what we're having for lunch and less like why you think this light should be orange instead of blue. Lunch was always covered. <laughs> yes. I will say our production team was super stellar. I mean, I have to, uh, uh, you know, my roommate was the production coordinator, so I'm a little biased, but he had it all handled with with our um, great assistant coordinator, Christiane. So we were not ever worried about lunch. It was always delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but your point stands of like, you, we have to kind of make a point of dialing. It. Chrissy, did you, were there instances, I can think of a few times you were mad at me about <laughs> schedule, which is a different deal. I don't think so. I, I, in thinking of that question, I feel like, and maybe it's because we've known each other for a long time and worked together. I never felt like there were things that were, you know, out of place or that I wouldn't accept hearing feedback on. Although that being said, I think there were certain things where if we disagreed, depending on the type of decision, I would win. <laughs> so maybe I'm like, you know, but you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Like a creative. Well, I, well, yeah. A creative thing on, you know, I, I think, I think we were all always open for discussion, but there were certain things that were in different people's wheelhouse that we deferred to them on. And did that, that extend, yeah. did that extend into post also like in the edit and all that stuff? Yeah. I would say post in particular, B and I were purely like producer producers. Like we weighed in on notes and things like that, but in a, in a, and I think maybe a more traditional way, basically. Like I think B again, speaking to like, us falling into our, our wheelhouses, I did more post soup sort of work and B acted like the studio a little bit more. Like B was like on clearances and like keeping track of music cues. And I was like pushing files around and Chrissy got to make the vast majority of the creative decisions, I would say. And then they would be thrown back to both of you to give no, you know, like I think I was in the trenches with our editor, Andy Young, working on it. And then, you know, you both would see a cut and weigh in. Yeah, but we would never be like, oh, I think there's a better take because we know, you know, if there's a better take or not. You looked right. more than yeah. we did. Yeah. And sort of going back to your question earlier, Warren, I mean, we, in terms of communication, we we met every day after each day of shooting, we would have a meeting and then talk about the next day's work and 
really prepping that way. So I felt like I always felt like communication was really open. And I mean, to the point where like, there were a couple weekends where my boyfriend came to set and he was like, Oh, you guys like we'll sit down and chat and <laughs> make sure you have every, you know, get, get out any sort of conversations that need to be had, whether it's creative or more logistical. So I felt like the lines of communication were always open and it was, I mean, noticed by other people. Well, I think by nature of the first half of the movie being shot at our apartment, we lived on set. And so (laughs) MB would be the first one to get to set. So we had time to discuss both before and after. So you guys would end the meeting and then you'd be like, "Uh, B, can you leave the bedroom now? And you guys would turn the light off. (laughs) We'd be like, B, can you help us bring our bed down back to the floor? Back down to the floor. And we have to go downstairs to the other apartment. eat on this apple box. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's so interesting that you, you said that you and Matt Chrissy and Matt got into a few uh, <laughs> disputes about the schedule because to me that that happens to me a lot where it at, on the surface it seems like a logistical thing like well I think you know we should do this now and the, the time of day or whatever but I think like it's also like this big creative fight sometimes like I'll be like you're giving 20 minutes to like the most important shot of the day like why are you like this is an important scene you know like we need to do this and, and I'm always Lauren, fighting they're all important that's that why we're not, shooting them. It's absolutely not true. Um, <laughs> and, but also there's um, like I, for me personally as a director, I'm sure like all directors, like I really prefer to shoot things in order when I can, um, you know, and freaking ADs, they want to shoot everything in this direction first and then everything in that direction first. And then we got this actor at this time. So we're going to stop and shoot this random piece in, of a scene in the middle. We were lucky to be mostly chronological by nature of the film and the six years of the film we shot each of those weekends was one year at a time. Right. Oh, I'm curious, just like little little tidbits. And obviously I've seen, actually I haven't seen the final cut of the movie, but I've seen a cut of the movie. Um, what are some of the uh, visual cues you you came up with to let us know that a year has passed? Like, I'm, you know, obviously the most obvious thing that I think someone thinks of when they think of a project like this, like, oh, we'll have them have a beard in this year mm-hmm. and not have a beard, you know, and she's pregnant or not pregnant. Like what are the things that you guys did to um, show how characters change over six years when you're shooting it over 16 days? Well, I do think there was something fun about haircuts and, and wardrobe as being a telling sign, but from What's a like, camera what, perspective. What are the specifics of like the wardrobe, for instance? Like were well, you trying I to think- track years? Like, this was cool yeah. in 2015. Well, um, well, we debated about whether we wanted to place it in time. And actually with COVID and everything. I'm glad we didn't place it in time because we would have been going into 2021 and things like that. And (laughs) that would have made it very weird. But um, we purposely didn't make it specific to years, but you see the maturity of a character change. So like one of my favorites is you see Nina, who is the, the baker of the group. You see, you know, the first year she's wearing something really youthful And you kind of see her age up until she's, you know, she's fabulous every year, but it's like a different kind of fabulous. (laughs) But because we shot chronologically, we could do things like do haircut, like the the romantic lead had a long, long hair. Like he had like, you know, right. You can only go in one direction, right? Well, there was a, a bit of a challenge with that because there was one pickup that we had to have. That was like where they go to get ice or whatever. But that we had planned to have, thank- thankfully. So we put him in a beanie the year we knew that um, he would have a haircut for because it was a car scene. So we couldn't shoot it at the apartment. So we could hide whether he had the, the man bun or not. 
But the other big thing we did visually was that we wanted the camera to really evolve. So the first three years, all the apartment years are all handheld. And especially that first year feels the most sort of rough around the edges because it is supposed to be like, not immediately post-college, but it's, you know, these people who, you know, they're still red solo cups at their party. Right. And they're then, like Dogma 95 and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then, and even like the lighting, like they have, you know, like red, li- they put in a red light bulb. So it just feels, you know, messier. And then as the couple ages and they're trying to be more sophisticated, you know, both in production design. So like the tree that used to be sort of multicolor hodgepodge suddenly is like white, white lights and is a little more sophisticated until finally we move, the characters move into a house and then the camera is on sticks the rest of the movie. And then by the end, we finally get camera movement and pushes and fun things like that. But you kind of, it's, it's a subtle evolving of the camera. Speaking of that, I don't know if it's okay to share, but you guys have recently moved into a new house. Was that um, based on the movie? Is your life? Yes, based? we watched the movie and we were like, <laughs> we should move too. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I should make a movie about all the things I want in life. Yeah, Show it to my yeah, wife. self-fulfilling prophecy. And end up with five motorcycles. <laughs> B, I'm curious. Um, like I know the, you know, so the, I, Again, I don't mean to be late. I don't think the the movie it's a it's an awesome movie. It looks great, everything. It it is an indie feature, you know. Um, I've directed some indie features. I've worked on many features of all budget levels, you know, from like close to zero to whatever a couple million. I know that you guys were doing kind of everything more or less by the book, production wise. You know, you guys had permits. You guys did, you know, when we were I I visited the set one time and we were shooting, you know, on a sidewalk and you, everyone was wearing those vests that you're supposed to wear so the cars can see you. Can you talk a little bit about like, let's say other people are listening and they want to make a movie for $200,000 or something. Can you, can you make a movie and still do everything by the book with a budget like that? Like how, what, what, what do you, I what are the, I would say we did. I would say we totally. did. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. I mean, I think I feel like we're all on the same page about this, but for us, it was getting, It was finding those people within our network that were great at what they do and the best at what they do and who are sort of willing to share their, you know, their time and their and their talents and stuff uh, with us and with the movie. So, yeah, I think absolutely, absolutely. You can do things by the book and do them uh, correctly, no matter what budget you're working with. Yeah, it's rarely a financial thing. Look, permits are expensive. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that B is the more stringent of the two. I was a little loose. There weren't any um, weren't any permits on Squaresville. We'll put it that way. Right. Right. Which is your a web Which series the you web did series, like 10 right. years ago. Yeah. yeah, long time ago. And have like a teeny, teeny, teeny budget. But so with the exception of a few things, most of the stuff is free and it just takes time. For instance, B and I permitted, you know, you can pay somebody to to walk the entire neighborhood and and get signatures and and put up the signs that everyone's annoyed by that says hey we're shooting here and all this stuff if you want to shoot in los angeles uh b and i did it ourselves and it was terrible the terrible is maybe an exaggeration but it was like not fun and we were busy and we had a lot of stuff on our plates but like that's what you do if you don't want the cops to come and shut down your movie and we couldn't afford to risk it basically 
the lesson that I learned a long time ago is that the right way is the easy way, is the cheap way, is the fast way, even if it doesn't seem that way sometimes. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I'm curious, just nitty gritty, like how much does it cost to permit like a sidewalk to shoot on the street in LA? The Each per, it was around when you have ad fees and all, it's about $1,300, $1,400 with the permit and then with everything else that goes on top of that. And that's for one day or is it only for a few? No, hours? it it lasts uh, quite a few days and you can put multiple locations on one permit. But then, you know, it sort of, it depends to where you are in the US. I mean, we shot something up in San Francisco a few years ago and it was, you go to the, you turn in your your paperwork bucks. to the permit office and it was like, well, it was like a hundred or $200 for like a, a an insane amount of space. And it was just like, put some signs up and tell people that you're shooting here, which is so different from oh, wow. LA. I thought San Francisco is notoriously difficult to film in. At least we when saw I lived police there. officers and they were like, in, we were like, oh, are they going to look for our permits? And they just wanted to watch us film. They were excited. Yeah. I was surprised in San Francisco. That yeah, that is interesting. In. I, yeah, I film. I mean, typically when I filmed out of town, it's like, yeah, when the police come, they're like, hey, you want us to close down the street for you? Um, yeah, <laughs> people like, get really no. excited. <laughs> yeah. But in LA, yeah. it's just a whole different ball game, you know? And so I guess you do you agree with Matt's point that like you basically, it would be a bigger, you would lose more money by getting shut down on a day oh, by doing things the right way. A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it's just, I think we we had these conversations often too. It's like, okay, let's we're we're paying to do it well and for the peace of mind. And so then, you know, we can all we can all go home knowing that we did the work correctly and um and that all of our bases are are covered. And so Chrissy, what are like some big big takeaways that you learned from directing your first movie. I mean, obviously you'd been on set like a bazillion times before that you're married to a director. You've seen him do his work. You've directed short form stuff in the past. What was different about this feature and like what, what kind of knowledge the, did you drop on us? The stamina of doing a feature is different, you know, than doing a short. I, I mean, I have a few, <laughs> this may be the most obvious piece of advice, but I think the notes you get in the beginning, you know, you write a script and you share it with people and somebody has a note. If you choose to ignore that note, that note's going to keep coming up, you know, from different people. And so choosing whether that's a note, you know, that that's the hill you want to die on, or, you know, if you don't address it, it's just every stage of the process. And sometimes it's a choice of, yeah, I wrote that character because I wanted them to be that way. And so I don't care that you don't like them. I like them or whatever. Um, but one that I think all, all three of you are very familiar with was the title of the film was originally What Are You Doing New Year's, which is the title of a, a song. But a lot of people don't know that song. We didn't actually end up using that song in the movie, but I fought for it because I really love that song. And I feel like there's like a clever flirtatiousness to it. But also it doesn't have Christmas in the title. So people were like, but this is a movie set at a Christmas party. When I hear What Are You Doing New Year's, I think it's a New Year's party. And so there was such a back and forth and I fought it all the way along and ultimately changed it clearly. <laughs> and I'm, and I don't regret it, but it's something that I probably could have saved a lot of the mental energy if I had just addressed it the first time I got that note when I wrote a draft of <laughs> the first draft of the script. I, you, we've talked about 
that a lot that that notion and i think there's also the thought separate from like oh notes that like you maybe haven't decided whether you want to ignore or not there's also that that thing of like it's not going to fix itself you know it's like if this thing doesn't work on a story level or a character level or something it's not like you can improv it away or that your editor is going to magically have the solution you know, I think that that was a thing that you really highlighted for me specifically. But is that really true? Like, were there things that you were worried about at the script level that once you got to the final film, you're like, oh, we didn't even that wasn't even a big deal. Like no one misses the fact that they like each other, you know? Yeah, I don't know if there's anything I worried about. But, you know, I think there were things that I knew some people that bumped for some people that didn't bump for me. And I think I approached it you know, in casting, thinking about it when we were on set, making sure we had takes that sort of gave us the span of how a character could react to something so we could craft the performance. But it is, you know, something I think those notes just continue to repeat themselves, you know, and and it's a choice that I have to be OK that if, you know, in a review, somebody says, oh, I didn't like this part. I'm like, yeah, I chose to have that part and I stand by it <laughs> and I'm not sad that you don't like it. You know, but if there's something that is at all negotiable, and I think the discussion of it, you know, you find the things that you really push up against and then the things you're willing to compromise on. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the two, but I just think notes will continue whether from that and from different people, you could kind of write it off as well. That's just, you know, one person's perspective. But I think oftentimes they would continue to come up. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, find that stuff super fascinating. You know, we, we've talked about this a million times on the podcast, but that uh, Walter Murch talks about how, you know, in your script, you would dis- describe a character, you know, he's six feet tall, wears a leather jacket, has blue eyes and smells like whatever, camels, lights. I, I don't know anything about cigarettes. So I don't even know how to reference one. Um, and then, and that's the only time in your screenplay that you mention it, but on camera, like 24 frames a second, you see he's wearing a leather jacket. You see his eyes are blue every time there's a close-up. You see all this stuff. And so someone might miss something in the screenplay that's like abundantly obvious in the film, you know, and vice versa. And you mentioned earlier that you had done this like breakdown of the script before the shoot where you wrote down what each scene is about and why it's essential to the movie. I'm curious, did you end up cutting any of those scenes out of the movie? You know, there's no scene that is fully cut. There's There are two scenes that got trimmed a lot. And one of them, so the note that I'm talking about is one of the romantic lead is a difficult character. Both of them have flaws, which is sort of the point of the movie. We see them over six years and they both address it. They grow and finally are ready to be with one another. But, you know, the the male lead can be a jerk in the beginning. You like, we meet him and he's a bit of a jerk and sort of in that classic rom-com based mostly pretty directly on Matt, right? Very heavily on Matt. Yes. Um, just a total cad says all the wrong things. Um, but over time, you know, you sort of, his veneer cracks and you get to know him and, you know, Early on, I I got notes of, well, is he unlikable? And so while we were casting, that was something we were really sensitive to, you know, trying to find the right balance of somebody who really fit the essence of the character and who could have that growth, who could have, who could play that guy who's sort of a jerk in the beginning, 
but also who has a softness and a vulnerability that finally you get to see by the end of the movie. But uh, one of the scenes that we did end up cutting, well, it wasn't cut. We kept the beginning of the scene, but cut the (laughs) sort of worst part was one where he is just really awful. (laughs) And I find it entertaining. Maybe if there's ever special features, it'll be released to the world. But um, he's a real jerk in that scene. It it made me realize, and especially when we were watching it with an audience at festivals, you know, the arc of a a, a rom-com is tricky, right? Like, if you think of it as three-act structure, and the thrust of the movie is the audience wanting this couple to get together, right? Then the darkest night, the moment right before everything resolves, has to be the moment where you believe, for whatever reason, they're... um, they're not going to get together. And in classic rom-coms, it's because someone is moving to the other side of the country and they're on, they're on the, the plane or something like that. You know, uh, they've moved to Santa Barbara, they're getting married and they have to, you know, someone has to stop them from getting married to the other person at the last minute. But with something character based like this, you know, it has to be a personality problem. And so that's a weird tightrope to walk where you're like, Oh, okay. Like, we have to believe that they're not going to work out. And the reason they're not going to work out is because they're not compatible. And we really like both of them, but one of them is in their own way. And that's a really tricky thing to keep an audience on your side for. I would also argue, you know, when Harry met Sally is maybe the best romantic comedy. And clearly anyone who watches the movie will know I have an affinity for that. But Billy Crystal at the beginning, he's, you know, chewing grapes and spitting the seeds at the window. He's awful, you know, and he continues to say inappropriate things and like, but somehow we're rooting for them. And so I think, and I think maybe it's my background as an actor. I really like characters who are likable, you know, and I think it's that balancing of act of finding enough moments to make us like them. And so hopefully we achieve that, but it was, you know, I think one of the larger challenges in the edit was making sure that we could keep the audience on board long enough, you know, to show his flaws and also, you know, still root for him in the end. Yeah, it's a super tricky tightrope to walk, I think, you know, the like, obviously, a character is gonna have a redemption at the end, but you need the audience on board with them in the first act, like ideally in the first five minutes, right? And, and you can, you see like a show like house of cards where Frank Underwood, you know, a a dog gets hit in the street and he goes to it and you think he's going to help the dog. And then he like kills the dog. And it's like, obviously they're kind of subverting this, um, the trope of like the, someone helping the dog to make you like them, saving the cat, whatever (laughs) (laughs) version of it. Um, but there, but in a way he's like killing the dog, to put him out of his misery, you know, also. And, and, and then he looks straight to the camera and explains exactly why he's doing it. And so it's, it's less about, I think to me and in my, my feature, we cut out an entire character for this exact same reason, not because she wasn't um, likable, but because she was like getting in the way of, of, of encouraging the audience to get on board with our, our other characters, you know, but it, there's Billy Crystal and when Harry met Sally is just like so charming and so funny and so relatable. It's like Larry David, right? He's like this awful sure. character. Who's only awful. He's awful, but we yeah. love him. Yeah. yeah but he's <laughs> so funny. I mean, are you guys caught up on the new season of curb? I mean, not yet. It's just, 
there's a scene where he just goes into the dentist's office and he, you know, you, you write the, your appointment time and your arrival time, right? When you sign into the dentist's office and he's like, what? Why do you need my arrival time? Like, like, like just so you can see how well I did at hitting my appointment time. Like, obviously I'm going to lie if I arrival time is after <laughs> my appointment time. Like, how do you even trust this? You know? And he's just being so annoying, but we're like, yes, you know, <laughs> we feel the same way. So I don't know. Although I, I have friends who don't like that show because they find him so unlikable. So I think, you know, <laughs> there that note is still coming up for those people. Yeah. And Larry David's okay with it. Yeah, he doesn't care. He's <laughs> like, that's, yeah, the point. Oh, man. I love that. Yeah, that show so much. Um, B, are, what's, can you talk about some takeaways you had? Have you produced other indie features? No, this was my first. Um, this was my first indie feature. So what, as a producer as like someone that's trying to put a movie together, you come from this kind of multi-million dollar big machine TV, you know, 150 person crew world. Like what are some things you had to do differently or some new things or attitudes that you had to have in order to, you know, finish making this it, movie? To get it all done. Yeah, to get it made. One takeaway, and I, I, Matt, I know you'll agree, is <laughs> it's really scary to be financing so close to when you're going to be shooting. <laughs> and we made it, thankfully, but there were a couple of there were a couple of days where Matt and I would be like in the corner on the phone trying to sort of shield, just shield crying just blood be, out of our eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> But in the end, it was actually something that I think served us because we were really careful with our budget and how we were um, ultimately spending money. And then we were able to, you know, because we were careful with that, we had, you know, money that we could use in post. And yeah, so my, the big takeaway though would be, I, I guess I, if, if things were sort of in this perfect world, we'd have a little bit more time between when we're financing to when the start of principal photography uh, yeah, I would agree. Don't, but I, people always have cash I mean, flow problems. Yeah, I, guess. I, I don't think we've heard of one indie film that had all their money raised before they started shooting. You know, but I think B's point is like we definitely would have spent more money than we should have if we knew what that total number would be. If we knew that we were going to raise like on WeFunder, I think the number is like one forty or something like that. We would have spent more than we should have not have enough money for music, not have enough money for title sequences, you know, all the, the clearances, all the stuff that uh, you don't want to spend money on because it's not sexy or cool, or you can talk yourself into believing that you're not really going to need that stock footage. Or whatever. Yeah. It's all fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All of that yeah. stuff uh, comes to get you. And like festival rights is a good, good example, Warren. So our music supervisor was able to secure rights in perpetuity to all of the music that we had so that when we go to distributors and sell the movie, we don't have to go back and like pay money out of an MG or whatever. Like there's a lot of that, that stuff that's really annoying and stressful and we were lucky. And I would, I would count us as, you know, precautious producers. You know what I mean? I think there's just stuff that bubbles up that, you know, uh, you don't realize it's going to cost you $20,000. Right. Sorry. I, I like to have a specific type of coffee when I come to visit the set. <laughs> um, so B, what, what is an, a thing that people will try to skimp on in like an indie production that they shouldn't? Um, like to me in commercials, it's like, like, I don't care if the, 
budget is like $5,000, you know, I think something should go to music and something should go to color where I think a lot of times that's not really budgeted for. Like what, what are the things in an indie film that people maybe aren't budgeting for that are things that really move the needle in a way that, that you can tell us about? You mean to, for to get a distributor or just in, just in general, like, or to get casting crew on board? Cause I will say, I guess from that aspect, something that doesn't cost that much money, but really does go a long way. And it's something that, you know, we did on KIA that we were doing on Squaresville and that we, you know, brought over to see you next Christmas is we would ask people what, you know, what sort of treats they like. And, you know, if someone's like, oh, I love Twizzlers, that's something that's really easy to have on set that will make people happy and sort of um, create a nice environment. And I think that I had a boss once that was like, everything's about food and parking. And so, you know, if you think about it, I mean, it's kind of true, right? Like people, people love food. And, you know, if you, if you're having meals that are just like the same, like sandwich platter every day, like that's a little thing. And yeah, it's not that expensive, but if you're, you know, taking the time to see what people's likes are, especially with an indie film, a lot of people are maybe taking cuts with their rate to do this project, you want to find other ways to sort of compensate them because they're giving their, their time and their craft and knowledge. I, you know, we were uh, alluding to Enrique before who, who took care of many, many, many things, but in addition to lunch and it was, uh, <laughs> it's funny to me because he, you know, works on like B works on all sorts of big fancy TV shows. And so it, lunch was a microcosm of something that was just very clear to me of like, Oh, you can take your experience of knowing how to do something at a super high level and deliver because you have relationships with vendors or you just know who to call. Our food was always top notch and was way cheaper than I ever, ever imagined it could be and was way nicer than I thought we could with the, with the amount of money that we had. And it was just like, oh, you just know how to do this better than me going to Costco. Like, it, like the the crappy version would be like me going to Costco and getting a bunch of like rolls or whatever, and not knowing how to do it right, rather than like getting a catering deal or whatever. And that's I know we're joking about the food stuff, but I think that like having a crew that has those experience points accrued already pays for itself in ways that are really hard to quantify. Um, if you're dumb like me, but if you saw it, you're like, oh, this, I didn't know lunch could be this good for a hundred dollars for the entire crew or whatever. It was staggering, you know? Well, yeah, it's interesting. A lot of, you know, there's this like when people first start working in film, there's like, like this idea that like, oh, all you got to do is feed feed these people and they'll come like work for free or whatever. And but then you talk about a movie like your movie where you're actually getting professional, you know, professionals in their field to come work for a really reduced rate. And it's not just about feeding them, but it's maybe trying to feed them at the same level that they're used to being fed on these like other productions. So, you know, obviously you're not going to have dedicated people walking around giving them little the you know, quesadillas platter. or whatever. <laughs> but what you're saying, B, is like the, such an easy thing. Like, hey, what are some snacks you like? And like, hey, we're taking special, uh, we're paying attention to your needs um, specifically. Sounds like a big bonus. I think an offshoot of that when we were crewing up, one of our big questions to everybody was what, you know, why would you want to be a part of this? Because 
not why would you want it? What are you thinking? But I think making sure that everybody who was a part of it, that this was an opportunity for them in some way. Because I think, you know, sometimes, especially in the low budget world, you think, well, I'll go to my friends and ask for favors. And I think something I realized is that when a friend is, if it's a pure favor, you know, another job comes up and they have to take it, you know, because there's nothing really in it other than, you know, like wanting to help out their friend, which is wonderful and appreciative. But, you know, finding for everybody what the opportunity was, because I think a lot of the reasons that we could get, you know, people who worked in network TV, I mean, part of it, of course, is B's wonderful relationship with many of them. But also some of them, it was an opportunity to be a department head when they are always the assistant. And so finding what an opportunity. Or to do their first feature. Yeah, to do their first feature. Right. You know, finding what or it is. Or the script uh, accidentally dropped 10 C-stands on someone. No one will hire him. We'll take it. <laughs> that is not how we hired. Um, but, but you know, or I mean, I remember on Squaresville this happened where RAD had a lot of experience, but the thing that was interesting to her, we had had one season of Squaresville that got distribution. And that was interesting to her because she was getting, she had finished her thesis at USC and had a web series that she had written and directed. And so she wanted to know, she wanted to ask Matt questions how he did it. And so she was willing to do, you know, AD work that she would charge a lot more for, for the ability to talk to Matt and have that sort of mentorship opportunity. Hmm. Next time she should just talk to me. I'll ask him. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, that, that, that is interesting. It's actually something that Matt talks a lot about, which is when we're hiring for the podcast, which is not something we do a ton, but like, you know, Hey, we can't pay you a ton of money, but what can you get out of this? But yeah, sometimes it's I hard to find people in that, you know, in that <laughs> But it's something you genuinely want because you want people who want to get, who you, you feel like you're not taking advantage of, but that they are getting something out of it. And it might be, it might be surprising what they want of just, you know, oh, it's really interesting. I want to move into directing. So I want to be on a set where I can watch a director because I'm, you know, in an office all the time. So it's exciting to me to PA and get to watch it, which you're like, okay, I'm happy to <laughs> let you come. I would say also, um, we're pretty good about paying it forward. You know, I think the, you've hired, I don't know how many people from the movie already or hooked them up with job jobs, which is, um, a, oh, really? a thing that, yeah, yeah, you you kind of have to like yeah. recommending recommending people and putting your money where your mouth is, and you know, making sure that you follow up with them and and you know, create as much opportunity for them as you can. That's cool. That's why B has like seven personal assistants now. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, you earn this. Um, <laughs> you get to pick up my drag cleaning. Or and to answer a, an earlier question, though, that I'll kick over to you too. Uh, title sequences was something that we really underestimated and really budgetarily and and also just kind of on a creative. on a creative level i think there was a plan and it didn't totally work and so pivoting and and you know it's literally the it's frame one of the movie is this title sequence and i think it does do a really good job of um setting the audience expectation for the style and tone and voice and and level of quality, frankly, uh, for the film. So um, I thought you two could talk a little bit about that. Well, I'll jump on sort of it made me think of another point about, you know, we did shoot chronologically. And while I highly recommend that if you can, 
the beginning of your movie, the first scene of your movie, don't shoot that on day one, you know, because everyone's still finding their footing. Everyone's, you know, the crew is getting used to working together. Every, the stakes are just different. And so I feel like, I think the title sequence, part of what we had planned and on the page, it read really well, but I think, you know, I hadn't visualized it the way I, you know, once we got into the edit, I realized like, oh, this isn't exactly how I imagined. And then we were lucky to get an incredible title designer who really, I think, sets the tone for the movie. And then, you know, but that's something we learned in post that we needed. Yeah. Um, did you shoot the first scene on the first day? Uh, you were there for it. Or? You were you were there. Yeah, that's, that's your cameo is. is what, on the sidewalk? The, yes. That yeah. was not your first day of shooting. That was yes. our first day of shooting, yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd already been in your apartment and stuff for well, we had shot a few earlier things in earlier the in the day, but they were all for the first 10 minutes of the movie, including the very first shot of the movie is that what was on the sidewalk. Oh, cool. The get out shot. Exactly. Yeah, we uh, we shove Oren into a trunk. It's a weird thing for a Christmas movie. Yes. They're like, which of our friends would fit into this <laughs> Mazda Miata trunk? That's how I get my parts, folks. Um, and so I guess my last question from B is like, Having worked on those big shows, like what are some of the skills that did translate to working on a like a smaller indie feature? I think, you know, the skills in both both sort of camps, like the indie world and the big studio world go pretty well hand in hand. Like, I think because I'm so used to going by the book and having so many different people to go to when I'm doing the bigger budget shows it's like okay now i know i have to you know now we ha- i know that we should talk to a lawyer about this i know that we should get a clearance company on board to look at the script and then to have someone who's going through every iteration of you know all the cuts that come out and then like matt said earlier like different relationships with vendors or or other people who i know at work that you know are people who might want to jump on to a lower budget project to get different experience and yeah, I mean, I think, and you know, my mentors come from that space. I'm very close with my producer from Brooklyn and he really took me under his wing. So sort of having that opportunity to always bounce stuff off of him, um, is really, has been really helpful. And that, you know, seeing him produce has influenced the way that I produce indie, you know, things. I, I would just echo how invaluable the mentorship that B has had and benefited from. Like I, I know how much I personally have benefited third hand from all of it, you know, or second hand, I suppose. But so like just having a person who, and these producers, you know, they've made a bunch of movies themselves. They've made a bajillion episodes of TV, you know, literally every person who's listening to the show has seen something that they have made. Right. So it's like the experience really speaks for itself. And so, being able to just like in a pinch shoot someone a text and and have peace of mind or know that we need to go back and fix something or whatever was truly, truly invaluable. And I think speaks to a thing that we kind of hammer home of like just being in a being in the building, quote unquote, you know, being around other people where you can kind of build your network out, I think was a thing that that really, really helped us. And then the the other thing that B, I think you're underestimating because you just habitually cross every T and dot every I, but like 
the discipline that a uh, studio drills into you, I think makes things like delivery and wrap out much, much, much easier. Every, every indie producer I've ever known has been like tearing their hair out, like hasn't slept in three weeks because they're delivering the movie. And it's not because post is really hard. It's because they're trying to track down that piece of artwork and get the contract signed and this and that. And we had those, we had our fair share of those little, you know, hanging to do's or, or when rewatching a movie, realizing I shoot, there's something that we need to, to catch or whatever. But like the peace of mind of having delivered a, I don't want to say perfectly, but I'm very confident in the clearances and delivery aspects of it. And it's because it's one of the best cleared movies I've ever seen. Sure. Yeah, it is, though. And so, like, we're not gonna, like, I'm not worried about errors and omissions insurance, even though we have it. Do you know what I mean? And but I guess what I'm trying to say is that, like, if you are studious and sorry, fastidious about getting location releases, getting appearance releases, getting art releases and calling if you need something or if you need to double check on something, all of that stuff adds up to a successful release. And like we personally know plenty of filmmakers who didn't know all of the things that they needed to do and ended up in some real trouble, not being able to afford a song anymore or or not having to cut a scene or blur a face. Like, what a bummer. To, in a fight to, with Bruce Springsteen. Fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, like, we've, we've seen movies where you see a piece of artwork that's blurred in the background. That's like, dang, you spent three years of your life working night and day and, like, paying somebody to hang that up and put and frame it in the right way and all and then color grade it and put it into the edit. It's like so much work to mess it up because you didn't get somebody to sign the piece of paper or you didn't double check that it was cleared in the first place. is such a heartbreak to me. Um, and so everybody just do that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> well, but there was something Matt, you and I were texting a few weeks ago and I was like, Oh, you know, I'm just, I just, what is it? Like, I'm, I'm a little, I was a little panicky about something and you were like, I rely on your, <laughs> on your, yeah. on your, your anxiety. Anxiety. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Okay. Release forms. I'll work on that. For the I next, know it's not cool. It's important. All oh, my, my last two features, every, every freaking picture in the background's blurred out. It sucks. Um, okay. So Chrissy, so you made a movie. Now what? What's like? What does what does this mean for your career? Oh, uh, skyrocketing! I think that's what happens next, right? Um, well, I have a that other feature we were trying to get made into the fog. One, into the fog, um, won a development grant, so we have some cash in the bank for that. And so the next the next thing on the horizon is developing that out further. I'm rewriting the script and. And you were the lead in that script. Yes. Yes. And I'm planning to be on this one. Um, So I guess. you still want to direct it as well. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, putting that together and figuring that out and starting all over again. (laughs) I think there is something about just like having had a feature made. I think there are a lot of intangible things that you, you know, you don't realize. People don't say like, oh, 
we hired you because of your resume specifically sometimes, or we took the meeting because of the resume, or people respect you a little bit more because of the resume. But I think that all of that stuff in intangible ways and more overt ways kind of is important. We've seen it. I mean, we see um, on the podcast all the time. I will say when you have a movie that's like in theaters or coming out or just being released or available in streaming, whatever, obviously, you know, I don't think any of us go to as many parties as we used to, but uh, there is this like weird confidence you have when you're like, oh yeah, I just finished this movie. It's coming out on this date. It's doing this, it's doing that. That makes you like you charismatic in a certain way that people do want to like work with you. So I better capitalize on this window of confidence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want to make another movie, I think it's, yeah, I, it, from my experience and just the people we've interviewed on the podcast and stuff is like when you are, when you have things happening, people want to work with you. Um, and so it's, it's a great time to get into Momentum the fog going. going for the next. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, I guess I'm curious, are you interested in like directing other people's stuff or are you kind of. More... I definitely would be interested. I think, you know, I think of the three writing, directing and acting writing is the one that maybe comes least easily to me. I think I love. Wait, can we what? Uh, can we talk <laughs> about your morning page number? <laughs> hey, tomorrow is 2200 days in a row of my morning page. <laughs> Do you know about this bee? No. Do you know what morning pages are? No. So there's this book, The Artist's Way. Maybe this should be my unpaid endorsement. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. No, yes. Now I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So so one of the things you do in The Artist's Way is you write, you know, three pages. Is it three pages? Well, it's funny because I use this website, like 750 words, words, oh, 750 words yeah. um, a day to sign in, and it tracks it and logs it, which is why I know how many days I've done in a row. So that's the one thing consistent thing in my life is I do those pages every single day. The one thing. Wait, and it's <laughs> and, and just just to inform listeners if if that doesn't make sense why you would do that. It's like the idea is that you're exercising your writing muscles every morning. Even if all you're writing is like, I have no idea what I want to write to do. I don't care. Which I don't many days that is. Or it's just getting out all of the frustrations and tensions you have. You know, it could you could spend the whole all the pages saying, you know, I'm not inspired today. Why am I doing this? Why do I keep this up? But having that consistency is is really nice. Do you work out your features and stuff during your morning pages ever? Sometimes, sometimes. I feel like it's less creative writing and more sort of the personal demons <laughs> that come out in the the morning pages. But I think when I have a task at hand, I'll talk through sort of a question of the the script and and oftentimes it really helps doing that but right. usually it's more me just complaining so for 2200 days straight you have written your morning pages every well, single day well 2199 we'll see if i make it to 2200 2199 so including weekends 7 days a week yes yes holidays uh yes um yom kippur even on yom kippur <laughs> well, i don't know if that's five allowed years, 5 years 3 quarters yeah, um, so I remember like, the day I was at like 500 consecutive words and I missed a day and started over. And I was like, well, you got to start somewhere. So. You're like the Beeple of morning pages. I don't know if you guys know who Beeple is, but yeah, the, he the did NFT. sell a $69 million NFT. Yeah, he makes art every single day um, posted online. Um, 
So it's interesting that as a person who for 2,200 days in a row has not missed one. <laughs> yeah, writing does not come easy. But I think it's different when you're plotting and writing a story. Because I think my interest lies in, like, I love watching character. Like, I could watch the most boring film where people just talk and nothing happens. And I know that that is not fulfilling for audiences. And so the act of, you know, coming up with a story and a plot, to me, is the hardest challenge. Whereas I think interpreting a character or working with actors or, you know, once there is a script, that's something that I understand how to dig into. But writing is really hard. I mean, every every part is hard, but that's the one that I think I, I struggle the most with. Yeah. My take on it is like writing of all these different disciplines that we want to make movies you know, or that we use to make movies. Writing is the one that you do 100% like by yourself. You know? Yeah, I think the solitude of it is really hard. The others are collaborative. And I think you can't do the others without the script. Like, that's also the first step. And so I think I started writing only by necessity because it was like I wanted to make things and nobody was handing me a script to direct, you know? And so I just started writing them. And I knew I had access to me to act in them. So I think my, my, it was less about, making a showcase for myself and more about using the resources I had. Right. Yeah. And of all the partnerships you hear about in Hollywood, probably the most common one is like the writing partnership because it's, you know, it's a way to not do it alone because in every other, as a director, as an actor, as and you have other people to like work off of. Well, and the accountability of that, I would imagine would be really nice. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, what's, uh, how do we see the movie? November, uh, November, 7th? 9th. November 9th, November 9th, Tuesday, November 9th, available on digital platforms such as iTunes, Amazon, Voodoo, Xbox. Am I forgetting one? Oh, those are the big ones. Those are the big ones. Google. You could go to uh, Google. Yes, Google Play. Yeah, YouTube. If, if, you, Not YouTube. if you buy movies on the internet, you can do it. Cool. So <laughs> see you next Christmas. <laughs> And what are you guys? ChristmasMovie.com. See you next Christmas. And it's S-E-E-Y-O-U. Correct. Correct. Thank you. Um, And what are you guys doing New Year's? (laughs) (laughs) Watching this movie on loop. Yeah. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, you guys should all check out the movie. It's it's, uh, awesome. And it is based on Matt and Chrissy. Matt does have a character in there, so... If you're a fan at all of Matt Enlow, which I don't know why you would be. Yeah, cameos. Um, you can see also B is is a background player in the movie as well. Right. But Matt is like a character in my the movie. Voice is, my voice is in there. Well, that's true. I mean, it's an interpretation whether you think that role is truly Matt or it's not. It's pretty Matt. Like when I was yeah. giving you guys notes, I was like, you know, the Matt guy. <laughs> sure. The one married to Chrissy. Also, if you're a fan, uh, fan of uh, Brooklyn yeah. Nine-Nine, we failed to mention, though, Mark Evan Jackson uh, Paul Welsh. We got a, a handful of uh, Janet Varney, who's not on Brooklyn, but should have been. I don't know why she wasn't. Um, but we've got a fun uh, list of cameos as well. A lot of Jenny Lorenzo. Jenny Lorenzo. That's right. That's right. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons to watch the movie um, as well. Right. Even if you don't celebrate Christmas, especially if you don't celebrate Christmas. You know, some of the best Christmas albums are by Jewish people. Yeah. I mean, this is like a diehard. Well, it's like a, a, the, your alternative Christmas programming, but a little Christmassy as well. I hope that people can watch it with their parents and their jaded teenage children. I mean, there's a lot of Jesus mentions in it, though, right? <laughs> Santa does um, uh, marry a Christmas prince. 
So there you go. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, uh, you guys want to join us for some unpaid endorsements? Unpaid endorsements. So I'll kick it off. I got a um, a real uh, theoretical one. It's not a super fun. It's not like a TV show or anything. Um, the thing that I, I kept thinking about and we kept returning to in this conversation is the idea of community. I think that m- the main theme of how we got this movie made is like establishing and maintaining friendships, whether that's at work or in your artwork. You know, you know, we couldn't have made the movie without B's Brooklyn Nine-Nine family, truly. You know, we all met together, Squaresville, like there, like, and there's a, a good number of other people, like, and Chrissy also we didn't mention it, but like workshopped the entirety of the film basically through a, a group called sandbox that we've talked about a little bit. And actually they had a meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago and there were a number of just shoot it listeners who came through, um, which is really exciting. But so basically what I'm endorsing is not just Brooklyn nine, nine or Squaresville or sandbox um, or just shoot it. It's a finding community. I'm saying you have to be active about forming those groups and and sometimes giving them a little structure or a writer's group, an accountability partner, um, a game night. Those are all different versions of it. But I think that I'm just reminded that independent filmmaking in particular, but just in general, life is about community. And so I think as we're kind of finally emerging from this pandemic and thinking about our next projects and all of that stuff, I think that I am endorsing being proactive about officially creating community for yourself because I think it will pay dividends. Wouldn't you say that's what the movie's about? Oh, that's the theme of the movie. Dang, I didn't even understand the movie you made. Oh, no. Uh, Shoot, that's so obvious. You stole this endorsement from my rabbi. Um, (laughs) Sounds like a smart rabbi. He's okay. Um, Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks, community. NBC. Uh, Peacock. Streaming on Peacock. (laughs) Be what you got. I think I know what you're going to say. Yours, yours was so good, Matt. Um, mine, well, in the in a broader sense, would be finding something that is outside of film and television or outside of the business that you can do, and then come back to your to your work and your art with fresh eyes and a fresh mind. So for me, that's um, exercise. I love to spin. Um, Matt, Christy, and I would spin. <laughs> um, pandemic, I know. <laughs> um, B would me, would spin for an hour every day of, of before shooting. we would shoot. Yeah, we we would have we would have two or three hours of sleep, and B would be like, "Yeah, I totally worked out today." <laughs> yeah, some some form of exercise just to be able to you know come back with again with like a fresh pair of eyes and. Um, a fresh mind and I've just always felt like that's helpful so it might you know it might not be exercise for everybody it might be you know like reading or it might be playing a board game or going out and taking a walk or whatever it is that you you know can do to to step away and then come back and and see something in a different light cool so don't be a film nerd (laughs) (laughs) uh Chrissy what you got Well, I was thinking about it. This kind of was a thought based on a question earlier. So I'm just going to use that. That's the point. Sure. Um, Even though I feel like for all the years of your podcast, I've been like, I could do an unpaid endorsement easy. Then when you're put on the spot, it's like, I can't think of anything. You're like, microphone? (laughs) Uh, Audio Um, Yeah. Yeah. This microphone is mine. 
endorsement. No, um, write in your script a line that explains your movie. Something you would use in the trailer that can be an easy soundbite. You can cut it from your movie, but have something like, oh, here we are at the annual party again. <laughs> I mean, that's the worst version of it. But I think when you're cutting a trailer, you realize having something really on the nose that explains either a character, the plot, what's going on is a real asset when you're cutting a trailer. Yeah, the premise to the movie. It, we would Our lives would be much I love new. our trailer and it worked out really well, but... I really wish your main nice. character walked into the the you know party and is like in a world where parties are happening i'm here looking for love i've been here for six years and i keep hoping to find love so my i mean we would have put that in the trailer my and not in the movie that would have been really bad <laughs> yeah my friend adam mays cuts trailers for like a bunch of like huge studio films and he told me he's like that's like every movie has that problem that no character ever says what the movie's about and he's like, we've got every like voice impersonator. We got John Hamm, we got Eddie Murphy, we got all these different guys, um, John Travolta that we basically call in to, and we write a line for them that says that, and, you know, and just play it like off screen because it's it's a real problem. Um, but yeah, but the, I I always think like thinking of your trailer when you're thinking. Yeah, of the movie yeah and people important. say sometimes thinking of your poster when you're writing the movie. Which that I always was like, what? No, you want to write what you, you don't want to think of that. But I mean, it is thinking about the marketing, thinking about what makes. Well, it's what's movie. the hook of your movie. Yeah. And I love your poster, by the way. It's so cool. Kaplan, what you got? I got two. First one is this website I just used today. I actually got it from Film Riot. It's called Avatar SDK. And if you need a 3D model of yourself, it's a pretty crappy 3D model. But uh, like you go to this website gives you this QR code you scan with your phone and then your phone asks you if it can take a selfie of you and you take a selfie and then the website gives you a 3D model of your face and your head and your shoulders. So if you want to like chop your head off or that's what they did in the Film Riot video, um, you know, it's not a great model, but like in the distance, you know, you can, it's kind of like an easy free way to make like a digital double of yourself or at least your head. Um, and my other endorsement's really weird. I think Matt will think it's extra weird and maybe even potentially ask us to cut it out. But uh, somebody, the, a director was pitched to us today. His name is Corey Don Wagner, C-O-R-Y-D-O-N-W-A-G-N-E-R. And he has a website, CoreyDonWagner.com. And I don't know if we'll have him on the podcast or not. I don't know if he's the perfect fit at the time with what we're looking for. But his website is really cool. Um, he's a commercial director and, uh, and he does like amazing commercials. He has like this incredible Virgin Galactic commercial. That's like this epic space thing. He's done Samsung. He's done, you know, United Colors of Benetton. Um, but if you go to his website and you click on a commercial, you know, you can watch the commercial and he has like all the credits, but if you scroll down, he has all these behind the scenes things. He'll have storyboards, he'll have animatics, he'll have, um, in, like just visuals of inspiration that he used to come up with the look of his commercial. Sometimes like the set build or some of the actors or tests they did. And I, it kind of made me rethink my entire website. I Because I kind of do that, but I kind of just put them in random places like Instagram, which is, you know, I think not a bad place to put them. But like I could actually put the making of on my website under the commercial that is posted there. So I thought it was a really cool format and it's really interesting to see what kind of imagery 
um, inspires his commercials, you know, which is cool. Cause I think it, I think it's not stuff that is coming from the clients or the agency. It's him as a director trying to figure out how to hone in on a look of a commercial. So anyway, Corey Don Wagner.com. Pretty cool. Um, way to break down your work. thought it was cool. Okay. If anyone has any questions, go see, see you next Christmas. Tell us what the movie's about. And then, uh, we will agree to answer your question, which you can email to us at justshootapod at gmail.com. I'll say if any listeners pre-order the movie or order the movie and they watch it and they tell us, tell me who their favorite character is, I'll make Oren review their reel. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good incentive. If you watch it, let us know, basically, is the real answer. But like, yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions or uh look at your reel or note your short film or whatever. Uh, I'd do that anyway, but um, if you watch the movie, that's especially good. Matt will not do that anyway. I will do it for this. Okay, for this, but you wouldn't do it anyway. Well, I answer a lot of questions, and I have made an advice podcast for like six years. I'll keep making the show. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. We need like an AI that just takes emails and tells people which episode to listen for the answer. Boy, that would be <laughs> too, great. For the answer. That'd be cool. Yeah. And coffee meetings too. I saw Anna Kana posted this video about how as she's like gets into her thirties, she has decided to stop like just going to things that she doesn't want to go to. Um, like coffee with people that she's not that interested in like meeting. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah, I guess you could just say no, <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> um, Anyhow, uh, well, thank you so much for coming to this yeah. podcast, for commuting all the way over here. B, B how can listeners keep track of uh, what you got going on? I, I guess Instagram is my most public space. So Beezus218 is my Instagram handle. B-E-E-Z-U-S-218. Wait, B-E-E-Z-U-S? Mm-hmm. Okay, 218. Yeah, no A in the Beezus. Right, Beezus two eighteen. Yeah. That's one of my favorite um, Bible Bible verses. Verses, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Old Testament guy. What about uh, Christy? Uh, you can find me Christine Weatherup uh, on Instagram, christineweatherup.com. and then you can find the movie. See you next Christmas movie on Instagram, on Facebook, on. Just see you next Christmas movie. Instagram's the main com. Yeah, Instagram's yeah. the best way. And like Warren said, S-E-E-Y-O-U-C-U. Uh, no, no not abbreviations. Yeah, not the letters. Cool. Matt? Uh, well, you, you can follow me at Mr. Bad Enlow. I've got this podcast called Just Shoot It, and you can follow it across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. Uh, you can email us any questions at justshootitpod at gmail.com. Um, and check out all of our old episodes and the stuff that we talked about at justshootitpod.com. Yeah, and I'm at O'Kaplan on everything. I'm at Smitty Pileg on Twitter. And this episode was edited by the amazing Sarah Weirda. The music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And thanks for your time. Rate us on iTunes if you're bored. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.